0: welcome to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. My name is Erin McCreary and I'm a clinical assistant professor at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine and an infectious diseases pharmacist at UPMC. I am joined today by three people I greatly admire and I'm really, really excited for this episode. We have awesome content ahead of us and hopefully this really helps our audience. We are tackling the topic of burnout today, particularly burnout in antimicrobial stewardship and infectious diseases pharmacists. We're going to walk through what is it, what do we know about it now, what can we do about it in the future, and why is this an important topic? This is our last episode of 2020, and we know that this has been a particularly brutal year. And so for our listeners, we just want to kind of start and say that you are not alone in feeling anxiety when new emergency use authorizations are posted. You are not alone in feeling completely overwhelmed right now by trying to tackle all the ceftriaxone news in all of the patients with COVID-19 in your hospital. And if you haven't gotten to a single non-COVID-19 related stewardship initiative this year, that is okay too. And you are in good company. And so we look forward to some candid discussions today, some honest discussions about our profession, and then end with some silver linings and things we're looking forward to in 2021. So with that, let me introduce our first speaker, Dr. Emily Heil. Emily is an associate professor in the Department of Pharmacy Practice and Science at the University of Maryland School of Pharmacy. She also serves as the coordinator of the Antimicrobial Stewardship Program at the University of Maryland Medical Center. You may have seen Emily recently presenting to Pat Carb on antimicrobial stewardship and COVID-19 or rocking the world's softest sweatshirt in the SIDP merch promotional video, which you should definitely check out. Emily is an absolute rock star. We're very excited to have her on the Breakpoints podcast today. Emily, thank you for joining us.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Erin. I think this is going to be such a cathartic topic for all of us to talk about.
0: Thanks, Emily. And next, we're joined by Dr. Zara Casamali-Escobar, an infectious diseases clinical pharmacist at the University of Washington Medicine Valley Medical Center in Renton, Washington. She co-directs the local antimicrobial stewardship committee and serves as an associate medical director of the larger University of Washington TELA Antimicrobial Stewardship Program, or UWTASP. Zara is the chair of the SIDP Publications and Podcast Committee for this coming year, and you've probably heard her before as a host on some of our other Breakpoints episodes. Z's stewardship skills are only a small fraction of her general amazingness as a human. And Zara, thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Erin. And then finally, we're very excited to welcome Dr. Julie Simzak, Assistant Professor of Epidemiology and Infectious Diseases at the University of Pennsylvania Paramount School of Medicine. Julie is a medical sociologist who conducts research on the social factors that shape how clinical medicine is delivered, with a specific focus on antimicrobial prescribing, stewardship, and infection prevention. She published an editorial in CID last year called Are Surgeons Different? The Case for Bespoke Antimicrobial Stewardship. And this has actually become required reading for my medical and ID fellows and all my pharmacy residents on my stewardship rotations because it's such a powerful piece and I'm really, really meaningful editorial. If you have a chance to read that, if you've never heard her speak at a conference before you're in an app in for an absolute treat on this podcast today, because Julie's work describing stewardship behaviors and communications is really phenomenal. And I think I speak for Zara, Emily, and myself when we say we've all had kind of like low key professional crushes on you for quite some time. So we're very thankful for your efforts and for joining us today.
2: Thank you so much. I'm absolutely delighted to be here. I'm I'm very passionate about this topic, so I look forward to diving into this with you all. Thanks, guys. All right, so let's get started. This year has
0: arguably been the most challenging year of, of the majority of our careers, and we are now constantly seeing in the news and in social media and wherever one may look, concerns about the wellness of healthcare professionals. So let's start by defining the problem and kind of the point of our discussion today. So what exactly is burnout? And then how is this different from depression or other mental mental health illnesses that healthcare professionals may be facing right now?
2: Yeah, so I can go ahead and, and jump in and answer that. So, um, and I think the the context that you just mentioned about this being an extraordinarily difficult year and all of the challenges surrounding COVID, I think we can just sort of think of that as almost like it's just adding fuel to a fire that was kind of already burning. Um, and one of the key things when we think about burnout, um, especially among healthcare professionals, is that it's not necessarily just a a Um, issue with an individual, right? So you mentioned, you know, depression or other mental states. And when we think about that, we can think of that as an individual diagnosis. But burnout, while it affects and is sort of, uh, you know, shapes individuals, it's really produced by the context in which people work. And so occupational burnout is actually um, a well-defined and studied uh, phenomenon um, that is characterized really by three key uh, aspects the first is emotional exhaustion The second is a feeling of being cynical about work and and an emotional detachment from work. So meaning that, you know, essentially you've sort of lost your sense of meaning about what it is that you do every day. And then the final key component of burnout as an occupational syndrome is a sense of low personal accomplishment. So you feel like every day you're coming in and you're hitting your head against the wall and nothing is changing. You don't see the outcome of your labor moving things forward. Um, And so, So so this is a very uh, well-characterized phenomenon that has been studied across industries. There are tools to measure it. um, And many of you have probably heard about burnout within clinical communities. So prior to COVID, um, especially the issue of physician burnout, um, which is a a priority for a number of national agencies, including the National Academy of Medicine, Um, a variety of agencies are really concerned with this you know, three-pronged experience of burnout amongst healthcare workers, specifically physicians. Um, And there are estimates that suggest that uh, up to 50% of physicians experience some level of burnout. So that essentially means one of those domains or those domains co-occurring together. And the reason why this is such a concern for so many people, in addition to sort of the individual suffering of the, of the clinician, which I think is really important, but we also have seen within the uh, the quantitative literature that burnout is associated with a huge number of adverse outcomes for patients, for health systems, for professional sort of ensuring that you have professional longevity for people staying within the field. Um, It sort of brings down organizational functioning and culture. So this idea of burnout is something that is really been identified as a major uh, health services and policy concern. And a lot of it has been focused, as I said earlier, on physicians, and there is a bit of work, and and I know um, Emily and I have talked about this before, of the work that's been done in the space of looking at um, burnout within professions um, that are typically affiliated with antimicrobial stewardship. So there's been research that's old at this point on how many ID physicians experience burnout, so around 44%. Um, and then there's been much more recent work on uh, pharmacy practice faculty and clinical pharmacists with ranges of burnout um, from 42 to 60%. Um, so, so it is a phenomenon that is really experienced by the individual, but as we'll talk about a little bit more later, is produced by a whole set of factors around the individual.
0: Yeah, thanks for that insight and that definition. I know um, we've talked about this before, with it was on the podcast now and and throughout our SIDP members, and that. I mean, antimicrobial stewardship is spending a lot of your day calling and giving unsolicited advice when you really boil it down. And as much as we love it, there are days that that really does fit into what you were talking about in terms of emotional exhaustion or even perhaps that sense low sense of personal accomplishment because you're calling and 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 having to navigate pretty tricky conversations consistently and, and and again offering this unsolicited advice. So that makes a lot of sense. Sarah or Emily, any kind of thoughts on? this topic. I I
3: totally agree with that. And in in that idea of, you know, there's certain people that are on service and you see that they've prescribed something and you have an opinion about it and you think to yourself, do I really want to engage in this conversation today? And I think um, there's certain mental states for me when I'm like, yeah, absolutely. I feel empowered. I feel motivated. And then there's certain days when I think, no, I think I'm just going to work on IV to PO conversions instead. And I don't, I'm just going to tiptoe back from that. And so I can totally feel what you're saying, Julie, on my day-to-day work of how that actually manifests.
1: And I think that, you know, I really do feel that it's such a systemic issue. I mean, I know personally for me, I was in a full-time stewardship role for the first five years of my career. And I just got so tired of it. I started stepping back from making those calls with an alarming frequency that just made me not as effective at my job. And I realized like I need to change things up. And so I went into academia where I still do stewardship but it's not my only hat and really helped me to take that step back that I needed. But I feel like when you look around at kind of the landscape of people that are doing um, to use Jason Pogue's favorite term, boots on the ground daily stewardship It's a lot of younger, new practitioners, and you don't necessarily see um, people that are running stewardship programs that are in the mid to late terms of their career, and it makes you wonder why not. And um, I heard once at a meeting, a physician described stewardship pharmacists as young residency grads that will come out of residency feeling gung-ho and ready to save the world, burn out, and go to industry within five years. And I thought that was a little aggressive at first and was, you know, offended by the comment. But the more I thought about it, you know, I, you really do see that kind of in the landscape of stewardship. And so something has to change because stewardship is so important, as we all know. And so to make it sustainable, we need a, a large, a larger landscape of practitioners that are in it and enjoy it and want to stay there and invest in stewardship.
0: Yeah, Emily, I think those are all really excellent points. I know I definitely see that in even myself. When I first graduated, I was like getting alerts 24 seven for a positive blood culture initiative. And I remember telling Ryan Shields that there was going, never going to be a way I could sleep on a weekend if I got a new blood culture alert and we had to do this 24 seven. And he just kind of laughed at me and was like, we'll see how, how long you last with that. And it's, and it's true. You have to set boundaries and you have to kind of you know, incorporate different aspects into your job. So those are really important points that all of you brought up. Let's discuss more specifically then causes of burnout. If we can kind of pinpoint some of those and discuss how we see them in our practice, how we recognize them, what to do about them.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So just sort of bouncing off what others have said and what you just said about sort of feeling like you're very overwhelmed. We know, you know, again, across occupational groups that the leading drivers of burnout are things that will be very familiar to a lot of stewards, or at least their their subjective experience of their work is excessive workload. So having more that you can do in a day than you could possibly get done. Um, an imbalance between the demands of the job and your skills. And I think it's important to make the point here that it's not just what your actual skills are, but your confidence in your skills. And this might matter, especially for those at varying stages of their careers. One of the things I've learned in a lot of my antimicrobial stewardship research with stewards is that many of the people, um, perhaps at smaller community hospitals or places that don't have a very robust stewardship um, infrastructure is that often, new hires who are maybe fresh out of training are the ones who are told hey now we want you to do a stewardship program and you know so in addition to um you know having to learn a new system and meet people then you're being tasked with doing this thing which maybe you've trained in a little bit but you haven't ever started before um so that balance a lack of balance between what the job is demanding of you and your skills either perceived or actual a lack of job control. So you mentioned blood culture result alerts, right? So this idea that, We all live in an electronic stew where things are like going past our face at all times and trying to keep up with all the notifications, right? But if you exist in an environment that's electronically mediated and you have things that are just coming at you from all sides, you pager, text, this, that, and the other, and you don't really have a control over the flow of inputs, that becomes very overwhelming and it compounds all these other issues. And then finally, just a feeling of of stress at work. And and I I made the point earlier and I want to keep making the point because I think there's often uh, at first glance, it's like, well, you know, health, working in healthcare is stressful. You just have to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. There goes the, the boots metaphor again. Um, and, you know, try to, as an individual, just toughen up. Like we've all gone through hard stuff, right? But I think really making the point that burnout and this is relevant for when we talk about solutions that burnout, you know, again, while it is experienced by individuals, it's really not an individual problem. It's a problem of organizations, it's a problem of professions, it's a, it's a problem of teams, it's a problem of groups of people, which is why, as a sociologist, where my area, my empirical focus is on teams and, and small groups of people interacting, that's where burnout is either prevented, uh, mitigated, or caused. So it's also helpful to think about the context of stewardship in US healthcare institutions and some broad factors that might exacerbate these burnout promoting conditions. Um, The first is an increased demand for stewardship in US healthcare institutions. We know that over the past five to 10 years, there has been growing attention paid to this issue, an increase in regulatory pressures to demonstrate that um, uh, an institution has stewardship in place, uh, documentation of stewardship activities, right? and all of this is great. Um, Unfortunately, however, in many cases, the institutions have not increased the resources, particularly personnel resources, to do this work. So what you find in many places is that there are individuals who are taking on stewardship roles and responsibilities in addition to other obligations that they have going on. And this really um, contributes to this overwhelming workload, this increased feeling of stress. Um, We already mentioned earlier this idea of giving people advice that they didn't ask for. We'll talk a little bit later about the unique emotional, social, and cultural uh, factors that surround antimicrobial stewardship work that might uniquely contribute to burnout. And then finally, information technology challenges. And so we know in the larger burnout literature within medicine that one of the key drivers of burnout actually is poorly working information technology infrastructure. And so, certainly, healthcare IT has the potential to make everything more efficient, to help uh, reduce errors that are made in communication. But we know that it's often imperfect. Either it's imperfectly implemented or it has design issues that make it actually harder to get work done. Um, but it, it, I would be remiss if I didn't mention IT challenges because. Uh, Stewardship is is really built on the backs of IT systems in that IT systems that generate data that identify um, information that is actionable at the right time and communicated clearly. Um, And so this is something that I'd be really curious to hear what everyone's experiences are related to IT and whether it has sort of helped or hindered uh, antimicrobial stewardship workflow.
1: The IT topic is such an interesting thing you break up because I feel like IT can be so beneficial for stewardship, but it also is a double-edged sword because if you have inadequate infrastructure or support, it can also be your biggest enemy. So, I mean, for example, at our institution, we went basically dark with stewardship data for three years after we transitioned to a new electronic medical record, during which time we had zero access to antibiotic utilization reports and a lot of the longitudinal data that stewardship programs rely on to identify problem spots and not only areas that you need to target for stewardship intervention, but also stewardship successes and things where areas where things are working well. Um, And even now that we have those reports back, we actually have very little support on the data analytics side. And so we're constantly processing all this data through excels and just trying to kind of crunch numbers ourselves. And while Um, You know, we're trying to get some postgraduate training in this, and I'm lucky to work with a stewardship team that's very interested in some of the number crunching aspects of it. At the end of the day, none of us are technically experts or trained in this, and we don't really have the support there, yet this is an expectation of our job. Um, And then I think also on the flip side, thinking about some of the day-to-day aspects of stewardship, you know, if you are in a program that has very limited IT resources, um, that can really impact your ability to be efficient. Um, to identify patients where you're most likely to have, inter, uh, you know, make an intervention or have an impact. Um, and on the flip side, it might also really limit your ability to hardwire some solutions as well, because I think one of the things that we can do, not to jump ahead to solutions, we'll get to that down the road, but one of the things we can do to improve um, some of the burnout and stewardship is to hardwire a lot of what we do on the day-to-day basis into our electronic medical direct record, so that we're not so reliant on stewards to be making some of these interventions when we can just get prescribers to make the best choice um, from the moment they're putting in their orders.
3: Yeah, I I agree. And I would also add that um, part of the IT solutions are to ensure continuity from person to person, right? And so if you don't have a set communication that's ideally built into your electronic medical record system where someone can go in and see what's been done then people are duplicating work or giving conflicting recommendations to prescribers, which has a problematic situation where they're like, well, so-and-so told me to do this. And um, it just lowers the, the reliability and the confidence people have in your own program. And, or if that's happening, then they say, okay, fine. Then only do what Zara says to do, for example. And then all the work is on my shoulders because there's no way for me to transfer it to my colleagues which um is a problem in and of itself too uh,
2: that is a, actually a fascinating point on multiple levels what you just said there in terms of you know the technology not only imp- like Increasing efficiency and also communication for sort of having it be shared across the whole stewardship team, but also the perception of prescribers of the credibility of what you're telling them to do. And I think IT can either facilitate that, or if when it makes people's lives easier and it makes sense, or it can actually end up becoming an impediment because then people are doubting what you're telling them, and there's all these inefficiencies and miscommunication. And, you know, a, a project I'm finishing up the write-up on right now on clinical basically how do you get prescribers to trust clinical decision support technologies and one of the major areas is this lack of trust that the cdss clinical decision support systems are updated or reflective it's like they want to trust the automation but if they don't trust where it comes from or who's behind building it it actually causes clinicians to be less likely to accept that work so I think that that's just a really excellent point about how technology is complicated because it can certainly make everyone's lives easier and more efficient and sort of get us focused on the meat but we have to implement it with great care because the unintended negative consequences of these kinds of hiccups are not just like oh yeah we've got to deal with a frustrating tech thing but then it's all about branding in a way and like how do people think about stewardship so that's a great point
0: yeah, I agree. And I think also, uh, Julie, just something you said earlier, I think for me, IT, other than agreeing with everything Emily and Zara have pointed out, speaks to the larger fact that this is a system problem. Um, I hate the word resiliency uh, is another tangent. That could be a whole podcast on its own, but I think taking the individual and telling them they need to essentially toughen up, like you said, um, is, is just, completely flawed logic in medicine. And that's not to say that healthcare providers shouldn't have a degree of resiliency or to be resilient, because that is an important character trait. But to solve a system problem by trying to fix an individual, or even implying that it's the individual's problem, is is the problem. Um, and and to not offer, you can't just help one person, you have to fix the system or you'll never truly fix it. And so to me, that's what IT is with all of the caveats that it can be a blessing and a curse but to me it's more just thinking programmatically about how do we solve a lot of these problems to make everyone working within this system more effective and and happier in their in their positions I think the communication piece is is huge and that in terms of handoffs we I will say that's probably the biggest struggle of our stewardship programs are what you talked about in that it's so it's not so inefficient. We've made a lot of tremendous strides, but we still lack that like really concise communication when one person's looking at a patient one day and the next person, the next patient is looked at by a different person. There's still no good way in the electronic health record to kind of say like, hey, I page this doctor already, like chill on this. Um, and that uh, across our team can cause some frustrations that are really unnecessary because we're all just trying to do good work. So completely agree. Okay, so these are all really great points. I want us to get into more specific examples with burnout in antimicrobial stewards and the particular challenges they face. But before we do that, I do want to pause for a brief word from our sponsors. So this episode of Breakpoints was sponsored by the team at Sanford Guide. Sanford Guide with Stewardship Assist, which is an IT app, so we're talking about how IT systems can make or break your program. So the Stewardship Assist app takes the hassle out of managing and disseminating your antimicrobial stewardship information. Your hospital's guidelines and antibiograms are paired with the Sanford Guide content to provide a seamless and comprehensive guidelines app, accessible by prescribers and pharmacists alike. So your stewardship team can make changes at any time within this app without the need for technical expertise or support from your IT department. So yay, system fixes that we're talking about. And it's easy to track all of your guidelines using their intuitive editorial dashboard. Sanford Guide migrates your information from their platform to your stewardship program platform. And for most hospitals, they can have you up and running within a week. Since 1969, Sanford Guide has been a leader in antimicrobial stewardship, and that tradition continues to this day. You can visit sanfordguide.com slash SIDP to schedule a demo today. That's sanfordguide.com slash SIDP. All right. So now that we've talked a lot about IT resources and systems and things that can help us with burnout and really honestly, just the mentality of how we should be approaching burnout, which is system, not individual. Let's dive into antimicrobial stewards. What particular challenges are they facing? What is causing burnout in this field?
2: Yeah, so... You know, I, I think the first thing to make the point about burnout and antimicrobial stewardship, I have to really make this clear, is that there's really no research yet on this topic. So we we know that fields, professional fields, pharmacy, infectious diseases, um, that these these fields exhibit burnout high you know pretty high rates of burnout in general but we don't really have much much research on it within the stewardship context uh yet i mean there's certainly a lot of anecdotal evidence and actually in the work that i've done where i've done a lot of interviews with stewards across the country on other topics not on burnout i frequently get people bringing up burnout so i just wanted to share a quote from a steward who's a pharmacist at a community hospital who unprompted said to me, "You know, I'm starting to feel it too, burnout. I don't know if anybody ever mentions that. It's constantly saying the same thing and constantly doing the same thing, but nothing seems to be resonating, especially in the pharmacy position, because you don't have the autonomy to change orders or do anything, but you know it's right. I think that stewardship positions probably have a high burnout rate. And so the amount of anecdotal information that people have shared with me and even personal emails that stewards have sent me sharing an exchange that they had that was very draining to them really shows me that there's something out there that that we need to take seriously and the steward role in particular as a professional role that's characterized by very specific social and cultural dynamics are really interesting to me as a sociologist which is That you know we've already said it in this in this podcast that it's giving advice to people who don't necessarily ask for it, but it's within a culture. Within healthcare, where there are all these social norms about what's acceptable and what's unacceptable about how you interact with each other, and so many of you have probably heard of the phrase prescribing etiquette, which is a well-identified norm that, that characterizes many aspects of clinical medicine that is specifically focused on, you know, when people are making decisions about prescribing, that in many cases, there's sort of a norm that you don't interfere with the decisions of somebody else. And there's really interesting work about variation in this norm, depending on the type of medicine or the type of, decision or the the sort of clarity about the harm from the decision, right? So if somebody notices that a colleague is going to give a patient an antibiotic or a drug that they're very allergic to or made an error in dosing and the patient's going to get an overdose those are the kinds of prescribing problems that are okay to speak up to each other about but when it becomes when it becomes about sort of prescribing decisions which are either in the gray area or which people are sort of unclear about what's really truly appropriate then it becomes a socially sanctioned thing to like correct people And so this reluctance to receive feedback, I think shapes a lot of antimicrobial stewardship intervention scenarios. And, you know, we see within, particularly in academic settings or even in community settings where there's kind of a a clear hierarchy that that's another element to this is that, you know, there is a sort of a pecking order that is implicit in the way that medicine is organized and and stewards you know who may be from a different professional group or newer to the hospital there's a strong Feeling of trepidation about like going and telling the you know chief of orthopedic surgery who wants to like sprinkle antibiotic powder everywhere that that's probably not a good idea but that's their like magical pixie dust that they're superstitious about their operations and even though there's no evidence like who are you to tell me not to do this right and then the final piece of this and I I've talked about this a lot is that there is a emotional driver for why. Uh, prescribers use antibiotics. So it's not just what the guidelines tell you. It's not how beautiful the evidence is, how robust the evidence is. It's that sick patient sitting in front of you with their family that maybe you know them very well and you just want to throw the kitchen sink at them because they are so stinking sick and you want to help them. And as much as we've developed the most intricate Decision support algorithms and the evidence is getting better and better. The pull of those social relationships up against the guidelines or the evidence based practice, like you can just sort of see how that becomes a tense interaction. And even though, like, many prescribers are able to get past that, it still makes the interaction on the steward's part, who may not know that patient, may not be at the bedside, may ha- not even be in the same building, and that you have to have that interaction with somebody who is is in the thick of it emotionally and like navigating that is a draining thing. And I'd be curious for any of the stewards on this podcast, like what your experiences have been like with navigating that emotional aspect of prescribers.
1: Julie, I think what you just said resonated a lot with, you know, the, my least favorite term in the world and that is antibiotic police. Like I want to abolish the term antibiotic police forever, but that's sometimes what you feel like when you're coming at people with your unsolicited advice or you know your opinion about how the anxiolytics that they've started for the patients which are really the anxiolytics for themselves and not the antibiotics they started may not be necessary and it reminds me of a, a coffee mug that Aaron and I saw online recently that it was like meant for stewards and it said give me the carbapenems and nobody gets hurt and we first were laughing about that we're like oh that's so cute and then we were like wait no that's awful that just perpetuates The stereotype that stewards are just the police officers that are trying to take something away from the prescribers, and that's not really the intent of what we do at all, and just gets back to this, at the end of the day, desperate need for culture change and stewardship and how we're perceived externally, I personally find that to be one of my biggest drivers of why I find this profession a little bit exhausting, because no one signed up to be a peer police officer. I don't think any of us went into infectious diseases and stewardship thinking like that's
0: going to be fun. I think Emily, what you're saying there is another just ties back again to our system fixes is that when we de-escalate miropenem to cefazolin, we don't have to explain that to anyone. We don't have to justify that. We don't have to do anything because we look at carbapenem days of therapy on the back end. If you have appropriate data reporting in your program, hopefully you do and you're able to pull that data. But you know, you just like make the intervention, everyone like applauds you because they think that's what you're supposed to do and you move on. If you escalate someone on Mirapenem to Ceftaz AV because they have an NDM or something like that, and you need combo therapy and you have to put them on three drugs and one of them costs a lot of money, we have to like justify that. I, at least we have to immediately kind of file like why this patient's on a novel agent, why you're spending money on it, was it appropriate? And so like, there's more work involved in in escalating therapy too, to some degree, like to some mental degree, you have, you know, you have to justify why patients are on drugs that cost more. And that's also exhausting because escalating therapy is the most important thing that we do a lot of the time it comes with a personal reward for like 40 seconds. You feel really good about that. And you're like, yes, I got them on active therapy and I caught that, whatever, what have you. But then the downstream effect of using those drugs is like way more consequential than what we think we're supposed to be doing in terms of de-escalation.
2: I want to follow up on that and something that Emily said about, uh, well, the antibiotic police label, which is very, very common. And also I agree, very problematic. And then what Aaron said there about sort of the subjective. So I, you know, I'm interested in studying stewards to know about their experience with their work. And so what does it feel like to be in a particular professional role? What are the interactions that one has? And you just made a great point about like when you have wins in stewardship, you, you might be happy for like a minute and then you move on to something else but when you have those frustrating moments or those tense interactions those memories stick with you a lot longer and one of the really fascinating aspects of one of my studies that I've I'm currently writing up on communication and stewardship and how stewards sort of interact with prescribers and the interactional strategies they use is actually a, a finding that a lot of people, adopt the antibiotic police mentality, even if they don't know it, and that some of the most successful stewards who are good at communication are like, I actively have to work against that. So I just wanted to share an excerpt from an interview that I did with an an ICU-based pharmacist who worked at an academic medical center, wasn't actually a steward pharmacist, but worked closely with the stewardship team. And so we, we interviewed them for part of one of our studies. And they said this to me. I've noticed something when I've been rounding with the teams, so our ID pharmacists are part of the antimicrobial stewardship team and rotate on and off. One week, they'll be doing stewardship. The next week, they're on service rounding with the team, and there will be physicians that see these pharmacists rounding with the team, and they'll see them approaching, and they're like, oh, no, what did I do wrong? And the ID pharmacist says immediately, oh, I'm not doing stewardship. I'm on inpatient service, or we're not coming after you. So this is such a fascinating flip around even what a steward thinks their, their is. And so if there's this like wincing, like, Oh, I'm on steward this stewardship this week. So I'm going to have to do all this stuff. Like it gets deep into your, into your, your identity and what you're doing. So, I mean, I think that we're, we're getting at a pretty, a pretty deep thing. And then, you know, in my world of steward Twitter, Lots of people, you know, when I give talks about this, will come in and say, oh yeah, I felt like an antibiotic janitor. I feel one of my favorite quotes from uh, Tristan Timbrook is, Sisyphus ain't got nothing on the IV to PO. I mean, like this idea that it's this kind of, work that is repetitive and doesn't feel like it's going anywhere. And then you're also sort of dealing with this prescribing etiquette. So forgetting about the messy IT, forgetting about the workload, the lack of resources, there's this social and cultural aspect of stewardship as a as a patient safety and quality improvement intervention that has to contend with all of these cultural things that frankly affect Every effort to change care. So whether you're talking about infection prevention, hand hygiene, like you know, these are all cultural things that shape our ability to 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 make these interventions. And I think it's important to notice that and to make that a point when we talk about why does this happen and how might we help support stewards.
1: It really does start to feel like a thankless job. And like you said, those patient level wins are sometimes few and far between, and they're they're short lived. Um, And, you know, I think our our infection prevention colleagues probably understand this well, in in addition that, you know, we're kind of a behind the scenes player and our work is important, but it might not be as evident for those individual patients. It's not like we're at the bedside making all of those decisions that lead to a life saved or something. We might be contributing behind the scenes, but a lot of our wins are a little bit less evident and frankly, more longitudinal. So if we are slowing this antibiotic resistance train that is barreling down the tracks, that's something that's going to potentially take years for us to really see the benefit of as we watch our antibiograms change or we you know, kind of see the impact of C. diff rates at our institution over time. But our wins, are, I think, are a little bit less evident, not only to ourselves, but publicly, and that can make it a lot harder to feel satisfied in our work as well.
2: Yeah, I think that's such an important point, this idea that, you know, success is the prevention of something or, as you said, this very long term, you know, epidemiologic goal that we all know is very important in the aggregate, but maybe in the moment, I mean, when you think about the things that are happening within within medicine and the sort of symbolism we put around heroic actions which are often like we intervened and fixed the thing versus we we held back on something such that this you know terrible outcome didn't happen but nobody sees that and so i think that that is that is a really important point of like the value of the work of a steward is is invisible it's harder to articulate to others and You know, and that's important, not only for for sort of getting others on board, but for your own internal feelings of like, why am I even doing this? And it goes all the way back to like, you know, a sense of accomplishment, like, are you achieving anything? If you can't see the the impact, it can be hard to access that quickly.
0: Yeah. I think those are awesome points. And I think Julia, I think I learned this from one of your talks, maybe ID week 2018, let's say the, and I use this now when I call people, I say these words and I teach my trainees that stewardship benefits are often nebulous or down the road. And so the consequences of a possible antibiotic related adverse event or C diff or preventing antimicrobial resistance are all far away sometimes. And harder. They're not tangible in that moment. And so they take back seat to the tangible of the patients dying in front of me. I think it was a quote you shared from a physician you had interviewed. And that I just think is very important perspective when you call to make an intervention. I try to frame communications in that context. There are two other things I wanted to point out in listening to you guys talk that I have thought of. So I made myself little notes. Um, The first is that, and this just came up in I've started doing telestewardship, stewardship and so I want to hear Zara's perspective on this, too, and, and we mentioned this earlier that a lot of stewards are not necessarily ID-trained or stewardship is one piece of their clinical work, but they're also responsible for all the warfarin consults in the hospital, and they round in the ICU, and they do stewardship, and so there's a lot of these kinds of pharmacists in the United States in particular. Uh, this is kind of their job description, and um, with SIDP, we have a stewardship certificate that people can subscribe to and take to try to learn some stewardship skills and incorporate this into their work. And we, with our tele-stewardship program, are increasingly doing this with community hospitals, especially in a COVID world, because we are treating patients where they are now. And we are treating patients in the community with much higher acuity on broader spectrum antibiotics and seeing more things than they've ever seen before. So we had this big meeting like a week ago or whatever, and Sat down to how do we start training these people, these pharmacists who are awesome clinicians, but maybe not as comfortable with stewardship to start doing some of this work. And we came up with the so called low hanging fruit. And we said, okay, we're going to start them on IV to PO, um, de escalations, like five days of therapy for CAP kinds of things, which are all very important, very meaningful patient care interventions. But I looked at the list and I thought about it and I was like, we are only giving them shame on you interventions. The only call they're going to make all day is, you did this wrong, this needs to be a different route, shorter or a different drug. I'm like, we have to give them bug drug mismatches, even though they seem more complex. We have to give them positive blood cultures because if you can't call and do those escalation kind of interventions or do those kinds of things that don't feel like policing, that's where you're just miserable doing stewardship all day, but it really didn't click for me until I looked at the list and I thought about my day. And I thought if I had to make all the calls for all the interventions, we were going to start sending those pharmacists. And I was like, I hate every single one of these phone calls with the exception of like maybe two, because sometimes IVDPO is like pretty satisfying, but otherwise it's not. And so... I think that is just a really important thing to keep in mind that sometimes the way we think is the best way to train is maybe possibly the worst way, um, to train. And then the other quick thing I wanted to mention is that kind of on that note, and I think Emily mentioned this earlier, or you did Julie, that like mistakes are always going to haunt us in, in every aspect of our lives. And I think people that go into medicine tend to be a little, even more type A and even a little more self-reflective. That's why we have M and M conferences. That's why, and it, because mistakes are so important. I mean, it could be someone's life. And so it's crucial to reflect on those and learn from them and, and like really take them to heart. But we never from a stewardship perspective, to my knowledge, review like the 50,000 patients we helped. Ever. Like we look at antibiotic graphs and we're like, oh, our carbapenem use went down and we did an MUE on this drug and 80% of the use is appropriate. And like we improved our time to active therapy when we implemented rapid diagnostics. So there's like those global wins of like programmatic effects, but we don't often in medicine take a year's worth of patients that we successfully discharged with bacteremia on oral therapy and look at their successful outcomes unless we're doing a targeted data analysis and hoping to publish that or something like that. We don't just look at our day-to-day work and say, wow, these stewardship interventions, whether they be IV2PO or whatnot, look at the individual patient level meaningful impact you had from all of these positive interventions you make all day long. We really tend to focus on that one patient that potentially was harmed And so that can also contribute to this systematic structural approach to how we think about our work and possibly feeling burnout.
3: That's such a good point. And and in fact, I'm always, I live in fear that I'm going to be like the first person cut in the hospital. And so you're always preparing for how am I justifying my existence? And so I, on a regular basis, or as much as my director of pharmacy will put up with it, will like catalog here are the accomplishments I've done this year. Like Here are the things that I've done that are wins. And I learned this from, um, I think it was Dan Uslin at UCLA when I used to work down there, that they would actually put in a couple of vignettes. These are people who were discharged from the hospital. We found out that they had an ESBL bacteremia, but they were sent out on something that wouldn't treat them. And we called them and we caught it. Things like that that really, really make a huge difference for those patients. You know, if you've ever even been a patient yourself, you realize all the the things that we think are minutia, these day-to-day things that you're talking about, Erin, are incredibly important. They make that such a huge difference. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely haunted by my mistakes too, but it's mentally exhausting to ruminate on them. And so, you know, coming up with a systematic way, it even feels good to put those lists together or a PowerPoint of things that you've done and you're like, oh, I did something and I'm happy about this. I'm proud of this. And I'm going to share it with my boss just to justify my position and to show that we're doing good work.
2: And I think that there's an additional uh, function of that kind of sort of identifying wins is that it, it to getting back to burnout is that it really, again, infuses meaning into the work. And so I think that, you know, this idea of haunt you, both of you have sort of used the word haunt, like to be haunted by something that is missed or, you know, I have physicians talk all the time about like, oh, the patient I undertreated, I have nightmares about that. And it actually turns out that for many of them, they've never had that experience. They just heard a story of somebody else missing a patient's, you know, and the patient goes into septic shock, like the storytelling it's also my bread and butter. I study stories as data, but I also think stories have a really powerful effect on helping us make meaning of numbers. And so you mentioned sort of telling the story of the patient, even if, you know, the outcome is that nothing happened to them, but like, Hey, consider, you know, Mrs. So-and-so, and this was the situation and this was her family. And like, you know, she did much better. Like, I feel that, that trying to put some color into the stewardship numbers which are about saving and reduction but also showing how it's also the promotion of patient well-being by helping them avoid the devastation of of c diff and and avoid all kinds of negative consequences That if we can find ways as leaders and stewardship to help tell those stories to our colleagues that that not only helps us feel good but it also like infuses meaning into our work which is a key burnout a function of burnout
1: Yeah, I think that's a a great point, Julie, and I also think that not only is this data impactful for satisfaction within your teams, but we need to do a better job of sharing it externally because that will also help improve the buy-in that we get from our customers. If you think about the prescribers we work with as our customers, I know an example that comes to mind for me, we kind of went gung-ho anti-fluoroquinolone for a while at our institution and saw a really dramatic drop in our use of fluoroquinolones And a beautiful corresponding decrease in our C. difficile rates. And I have these lovely graphs that line the two up together. And it really gave our stewardship team a nice sense of pride in our work. Um, But we didn't share that beyond the team. And, you know, it wasn't just us, it was also the prescribers listening to our recommendations, right? So we should have run those graphs all over the hospital and said, thank you for taking our advice. Thanks for understanding why we're so nutty about CIPRO. And like, look at what we did as a group. And that way, we're not so much the police, but we are your partners in patient care. And that's um, a regret I still have to this day that we didn't shout that data from the rooftops. And I think all stewardship programs could probably do a better job of making this seem like a team effort outside of the stewardship team proper to really increase the buy-in. So, you know, as we start to move into how do we fix this burnout problem? I know that that's an example that comes to mind for me is, is how can we really engage our external customers in our outcomes so that they're invested in what we're doing as well.
2: Yeah, I think that that's a really great point, Emily, in terms of, you know, because it is, and you and I think customer is an interesting phrase. I, I've used end user before, but really you're on the same team. I think that's the other aspect of this, too, is, is it's multiple decisions and brains go into these great outcomes. And so, like, finding ways to celebrate that is so important. But... You know We're sort of moving now into how do we fix burnout, and before we get into really specific activities or ways that we can improve or reduce burnout for stewards, I, I think it's important to go back to the burnout literature, which, again, as I mentioned, there's a huge amount of burnout literature in medicine in general, not so much in stewardship, and I do want to just touch base on what the literature says around different interventions on burnout, because there's been a lot of interventions that have tried to reduce burnout, and many of them track along both the individual level and the organizational level with, frankly, mixed evidence to support their effectiveness. So, individual kinds of interventions are things like meditation, not knocking meditation, I do it, but I don't think that it's necessarily going to be the solution to all of these issues as we've made the point. This is really about organizations and systems, teaching people coping skills, um, teaching people how to communicate, and then like more organizational resource level things. So so interventions around like changing how uh, clinical services are staffed, trying to find ways to make work less overwhelming, although that's that's pretty difficult to do in all settings, teaching people how to work better as teams, there's even interventions of giving people snacks. Now, I love a good snack, but again, these are really core socio-emotional issues that, I don't know, I'm hangry, but that's not the full extent of things. And even providing workers with things like childcare and really ways to get at that more like work-life balancey kind of a thing. So I did, I did want to just make the point that that those kinds of solutions are out there and they really track with this like individual versus organizational level. But I know that with the experts on this call, that there are a lot of high impact, easy to make interventions that you can use as a steward right now. And so I'd love to hear what some of those might be.
3: Yeah, I I think that there are definitely things to just make life a little easier. And um, I think you hit it the nail on the head is that balance and being able to turn off is one of the number one things, I think at least for me, because if it just goes on and on and on, like this pandemic has gone on and on and on and you can't go anywhere and you can't go outside and you can't see your friends and you can't, like this is very, very hard to turn it off. And especially if you're working from home, and then there's no commute where, where I used to think that my commute was like an annoyance, but now I really value it. I like sometimes I just ride in silence and it feels good. At the University of Washington, we have a Dean of Wellness, Ann Browning. And I mention her because she uses this analogy of rest and recovery among athletes. Rest and recovery is an essential part of achieving peak performance among elite athletes, and that's recognized and it's valued. How do we transfer that to our jobs? Well, one example is that when someone takes a day off or uses their vacation, we can congratulate them rather than shame them. And we can also not expect them to respond to emails or calls while they're off. That's a systems approach to protecting balance. You put in your away message. You have a backup person. And even if your work does not have this culture, you can help create it. Particularly if you have learners, you can create that culture for them. Let them prioritize attending their cousin's wedding over ID rounds on a Friday. Don't have them make up rotation days that they missed because they were interviewing for residencies or for jobs. We all have trade-offs, you can't do everything and we should teach our learners that they can't do everything. Lastly, I have some pharmacist minutia, a few little bones to pick that I think we can all implement now to really help mitigate some of that extra burden and burnout that we feel. So there's two of them. The first is really long emails where the main point is buried inside of them instead of the first line that I read. When I write an email, which I can write some pretty long emails, I'll be real, but I start off with the bottom line or a too long didn't read line at the top of the email. And then I write the, whatever details I wanna write. The other thing that I think can help with some of that extra burden, particularly in this time of COVID is those really long or really frequent meetings that have no goals or agendas. Um, Because they can be, if, if you don't have an agenda that means that your people can't prepare for the meeting which means then we're going to be wasting people's time and I hate wasting time and I'm also really money conscious. So I calculate the cost of those meetings based on people's hourly salaries. And then afterwards you can think, is it worth the cost to have this meeting?
1: I think we also have to think about some um, more kind of systemic changes we can make to our day to day jobs. So I know one of the things I've heard is a common theme from other stewards is just kind of the monotony and redundancy sometimes. Like you come into work and you run the exact same reports every day. And it's like, how many more Cipros for asymptomatic bacterias can I intervene on? Or I know one that really hits at the heart of where we were starting to feel some pain at my institution was how many more zocins for neutropenic fever on day three can I look at when the patient's still neutropenic and we're literally going to do nothing. And It got to the point where we were having our weekly stewardship meetings and discussing how we just felt like data collectors. Like we were just checking boxes and like, hey, we reviewed it, move on. But we didn't really do anything. And so we finally sat down and reviewed our data from three years over 20,000 stewardship reviews and found that we were only intervening on like 20 to 25 percent of the charts we opened. And that's crazy. That is so not a good use of time of the brilliant people I work with. And so we finally realized that we should be really zeroing in on who are the patients we're having the biggest impact on and are there ways that we can hardwire some changes that relates to these common things that we're we're doing every single day so that we can move on and use our time elsewhere. And so I think it's something that took me way too long to learn in stewardship. And I hope other people can learn from that mistake that you should constantly be reinventing yourself and what you're doing and take the monotony out of stewardship, like find problems, solve them, And move on or at least change up what you're doing to try to maximize your efficiency and also optimize where you're really having the most bang for your buck Um, because we're all Smart people that can bring a lot to the table, but if we're just doing the same thing every single day one you're not going to like your job very much, but 2 you're also really missing opportunities to have a bigger impact.
2: Yeah. And just to follow up on that, you know, what you both talked about there of sort of improve, it's almost like you're, you're improving the focus on work that's going to be, feel the most meaningful and sort of be the highest impact given the skill set of the individuals who are doing the work. And so I mentioned earlier that a major driver of burnout is the imbalance between the demands of your job and your skills. And when I framed that in the first place, I was talking about people who maybe feel like they don't have the skills to meet the demand, but it can also be the contrary where you have the demands that are put on your time are way be- beneath your skill set and feel like they're sort of boring or not stimulating. And that, you know, trying to minimize the amount of work that, that it has that mismatch um, is really important. And it sounds like that's what you guys are sort of talking about, about how you organize what you choose to work on.
1: You also bring up a good point about leveraging individual skill sets, and I will say that important caveat, I'm at a large academic center where I have a pretty reasonably sized team. We certainly don't have as many pharmacists as CMS might recommend for stewardship, but I'm fortunate to not be like the lone soldier, and so I know that this might not work for all programs, but I do think it's important to sit with your team and kind of identify everyone's strengths and that's something else that we didn't do a great job of until more recently we have one person who is just a numbers phenom they can crunch data they're really good at those analytic things that we need for stewardship and so we've now shifted some of their efforts more into the longitudinal project management and helping us with our data analytics and less into the day-to-day where maybe they were not as comfortable and then we have another person that works on our team who's just really great at the communication aspects and Um, you know, will not let interventions die? And is that person that, you know, even on the roughest day, will go and fight that battle against that Cipro and the asymptomatic bacteria? And so that person maybe was not as strong at some of the longitudinal aspects of the program. And so we finally sat down and said, you know, why are we giving us all the exact same role every day when we all bring different strengths to the table in terms of what we're best at? And so if you're fortunate enough to be in a situation where you do have some of that flexibility um, to change up what you do every day, you should absolutely do that and leverage the strengths of your team, even if that means um, kind of disseminating some of that work to other pharmacists you work with that don't carry the official stewardship role, but are in a position to make interventions more efficiently or better than you can.
0: Yeah, even none, I think something I'm trying to be cognizant of too, because I I love infectious diseases and I, I would do it again if I went into it, but I don't, I did not realize in school and in residency and whatever, how remarkably administrative antimicrobial stewardship is and infectious diseases is. And I, I know that all healthcare people deal with administrative burden in in some aspect. So I'm not to say that this isn't true of other specialties, but Antimicrobial stewardship in particular carries just an unbelievable amount of data analysis reporting metrics, paperwork, joint commission, regulatory requirements. And these are not the strengths of of a lot of people. And then conversely, they are the strengths of of other people. And so if that's not your jam and you're the only stewardship pharmacist at your hospital and you do want to be calling on every single CIPRO, then perhaps like asking for the support from either an administrative assistant, for that matter, or an admin like resident, if you have a residency training program or someone in pharmacy administration, that's like a clinical supervisor, they've kind of moved up and out into, into more of that role um, and teaching them what they need to know about the clinical pieces, but letting them kind of put together that joint commission binder, or how can you bring in more people into your stewardship bold if your resources are limited and, and those aren't your strengths, or that isn't what's bringing you joy in your job, understanding that we all have to do things we don't want to do. Um, but just because you're that Point person for stewardship, that doesn't mean it's reasonable for you to do essentially like four different jobs. And the other thing is, I tell my trainees this too, and that I think ID, correct me if I'm wrong, guys, but I think ID is unique in that it's the only uh, specialty when you want to implement change. You have to get buy in from like, I don't know, 4,000 people um, in order to effectively implement that change with infectious diseases, with exceptions. But I mean, it's like everyone talk about rolling out vanco. Oh my god! Like I know Emily and I have had this conversation ad nauseum. Um, when you roll out vanco mice and dosing changes at your institution, whether it's a 60 bed hospital or a 600 bed hospital, you have to get buy in from like every personality type under the sun, and that in and of itself is exhausting, and that is a, a special skill set too. So I think those are just things to keep in mind and give your give ourselves some grace. I don't know that we realized that that's what we went into. All right. So thank you guys for your time again today. I really appreciated this discussion. For our audience, Breakpoints is produced by the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists. This episode was hosted by Aaron McCreary and featured speakers Emily Heil, Zara Casamali-Escobar, and Julie Simzak. Our podcast production team also includes Jillian Hayes, Rachel Britt, Julian Justo, Travis Jones, Kelly Cole, and Anna Zhao. Our theme song was recorded by SIDP member Steve Smoke. And you can subscribe to Breakpoints on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and helping SIDP advance our vision of safe and effective antimicrobials now and for the future.